0: Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 16. Psalm 16, and one of the interesting aspects of this psalm is that Psalm 16 was the very first sermon preached by the New Testament church. In Acts chapter 2, Peter addresses a crowd, as we're going to hear, and the very first passage he picks to preach to the church is Psalm 16, along with Joel 2. And so with that in mind, I want us to read this passage together and then pray. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, you remind us in Psalm 103, to praise you, O Lord, and forget not all your benefits, but it is so easy to forget them. And so I pray this morning that this would be a morning of remembrance, that we would remember the benefits that you give to us, and that you would teach us and instruct us. We ask in your powerful, risen name. Amen. Friends, you'll remember that when we began this series in the Psalms, we did something interesting with Psalm 2. When we preached through Psalm 2, we really had three sermons on that one Sunday. We did something fancy. We had a contextual, a Christological, and an eschatological sermon about Psalm 2. Those are fancy words that just mean we did a contextual reading. What does this mean in its context? What did David mean for his audience We did a Christological reading, which is just asking, how do we see Jesus at the center of this psalm? And then we did an eschatological reading, that is, how does this relate to end times? And we did the three of those. Well, today we only have time for one sermon, and I can see a sigh of relief as I say that, and it's a Christological one. It's seeing Jesus at the center of Psalm 16. Now to do that, we need to start in Acts chapter 2. So if you'd keep a finger in Psalm 16 and turn with me to Acts 2, we are going to see and read there an open invitation to see Jesus in this psalm. Now, as you guys are turning to Acts 2, you'll remember in Acts chapter 1 that we've already heard about Jesus resurrecting from the dead, and in Acts 1, he's with the disciples for 40 days. He told the disciples that when he ascended, he wanted them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And he ascends, and Acts chapter 2 opens with the disciples doing just that. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And he does at the beginning of that chapter in Pentecost with fire and a great noise and power, and thousands of people who are in Jerusalem for that festival gather at the place the disciples are because they want to know what just happened. And the Apostle Peter stands up in their midst and begins to preach, And as we said, he opens Joel 2 and Psalm 16 and preaches the church's first sermon to a mostly Jewish and convert to Jewish Judaism audience, explaining how Jesus fulfills the scripture. Now you'll see in Acts 2:24 to28, Peter is quoting from our psalm, Psalm 16:8 to 11, with special attention to Psalm 16:10 that says, "For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your holy one see corruption." Peter explains that King David knew that God had promised him long ago that his kingly line would last forever. King David would always have a king on his throne. But even as David was sitting in his study and penning this psalm, especially verse 10 saying, you're not going to let your holy one see corruption. In other words, you're not going to let your servant die and decay. He knew that he wasn't talking about himself. You see, Peter calls David a prophet, and he says that David knew way more than we give him credit for. David is writing 1,000 years before Jesus' time, and God has let King David in on a little secret. The Holy One would come from David's line. He would die but not be abandoned. He would be buried but not see corruption. King David looked a thousand years forward into history and saw that a king would rise from the dead, sit at God's right hand, and rule as the Davidic king forever and ever and ever. Can you imagine King David sitting at his table and writing this psalm and God giving him this vision that there is a king in his line who is going to reign forever? What fantastic news. When you and I see that, when we we get a sense of this Christological reading of Psalm 16, that is, when we see Jesus at the center of Psalm 16, what happens is what I've heard John Pauling say before. This is like a fat kid doing a a cannonball off the high dive into the placid mediocrity of our morning devotional time. When you begin to see Jesus in Psalm 16 and in Psalm 2 and everywhere else in your Bible, it explodes the way we read our Bibles. It changes everything because Jesus dominates the landscape. You and I never need special permission to find Jesus in our Bibles, right? Because he's already given that to us. He's already said, I'm everywhere. I'm in the law, and I'm in the prophets, and I'm in the history. We never need special invitation to do that. However, when we get to Psalm 16, lest we fumble the Christological football, the book of Acts shows us two sermons specifically that take Psalm 16 and show us Jesus so that we don't miss this incredibly important point. Jesus is all over Psalm 16. If you don't find him there, you have missed this psalm in its entirety. Now, if this were a class at USC, and I were teaching a course on how to read our Bibles Christianly, my main concern was, academic. Could, could we do this? Could our students be quizzed on finding Jesus in Psalm 16, and could they answer questions on a quiz to say, yes, I can. He's right here, and he's right here, and I see him over here. But, but this is not a college classroom. This is the church, and we are not interested in being informed as an end in itself. We are very keenly interested in being transformed, We are interested in having our lives turned upside down by what happens when we sit down with our Bibles. And because of that, we're not asking a question in an end in itself, what do I need to know? We are asking Psalm 16 this morning, what must I do? Is that not the exact question the crowd asked Peter when he preached this exact same sermon from Psalm 16, when Peter stood up and and, and told this congregation, Jesus, whom you crucified, died on the cross for sins, but he did not stay dead. He resurrected and now lives as king forever and ever. The crowd heard that and they were cut to their hearts. And what did they say to Peter? What must we do? What do we do with that information? How do we live in light of this thing? And Paul tells them very simply, repent and believe. Understand that you have not lived in the way that God has called you to live. You have disobeyed him and his wrath is coming. But if you will repent and confess your sins, if you will agree with God that you stand guilty before him, he will take that punishment and he will place it on his son Jesus and you will be saved you will be forgiven of your sins, you will be filled with the same Holy Spirit you see at Pentecost, and you will be changed forever. Friends, the key that allows us to find Jesus in our Bibles is to be found by Jesus in the first place. The way you see Jesus in Psalm 16 is because Jesus has already seen you and saved you. That's that's how you find Jesus. That's how you have this, this spiritual insight to see him here. I say all of that because one of the wonderful things about this church is we have many friends who are here this morning who would not call themselves a Christian. They're not a believer or they don't know if they've trusted in Jesus. I can't tell you how thrilled we are that you're here and that you're growing in your friendship with us. I love that. What I'm going to go on and explain about Psalm 16 takes spiritual eyes to see. And because you're here this morning, even if you don't call yourself a Christian, you're in a wonderful place because you are learning to see the Bible as a believer does. But you must remember that the key to see Jesus in Psalm 16, the key to find him, is to be found by him. The key to see him is to be seen and known by him. And that act, that experience, that transformation of knowing Jesus as your very own, opens this Bible before us to see as him as he stands in Psalm 16. For the Christians who are here who have been found by Jesus, I just want to get right to the point of Psalm 16. I just want to, to get to the heart of this psalm for us this morning because Jesus has found you as a believer in Christ, because he did not see corruption, but he rose from the dead and is more alive today than the person napping next to you, because you are now found in him, united with him in his death and resurrection, you get to hear this morning some of the many benefits that go along with that. Jesus didn't just find you and save you. He begins to add to you benefit upon benefit upon benefit, and you get to hear that this morning. I hope all of you experience uh, meeting a person of the opposite sex and falling in love for the very first time. And you experience what it's like to grow in that deep love for a person, so much so that not only do you love them and you've found yourself coming to the a place where you love them because of them and not because of what they could do for you you love them and you would go to the end of the world for them but only after that do you also begin to get to hear some of the benefits of them you say to your friend i i love this guy more than anything in the world and then i find out he reads poetry i mean this is awesome I love this girl. I'm already in love with her. And then I find out she's passionate about SEC football. This is just amazing. I I, I love this man. I would have married him anyway. And then I find out he doesn't play video games. He wouldn't know what Call of Duty was if it rung him on the phone. I would have married this girl anyway. But now I find out her parents have a beach house. It's like, this is awesome i love this person i'm known by them we're growing our relationship and it's just like the benefits keep coming That is what it is like to be found by Jesus. You're found by him, and you understand that he has saved you and drawn you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You found that the judgment that's deserved on you has been placed on his son Jesus. You find that God looks at you with the perfect righteousness that he sees his son Jesus, and then the fun begins. And then you get to hear that Jesus' dad has a beach house and all the benefits that are added. I want to look at Psalm 16, and very quickly, I want to show you eight benefits that you have if you are united with Jesus. We're going to fly through these, and we're going to take them verse by verse in our psalm. Number one, Jesus is our refuge. Look at verses 1 and 2. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. This is one of the benefits of Jesus. We said last week, we were in Psalm 10, A very difficult psalm of suffering that Jesus doesn't spare us from our pain. We can know Jesus and experience incredible suffering, but what we do find when we suffer is that Jesus also becomes the very person that we can cry out to in our complaint. And when we do that, we also find he is the same person that we can cry out our plea and our trust to. Jesus is our refuge. That's a benefit you find By being found in Jesus. Number two, Jesus gives us friends. Verse three, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Isn't it interesting for the psalmist to highlight one of the bedrock benefits of being a Christian is that you get friends too? Isn't that interesting that he points that out here? The normal Christian experience is to be linked into a local church body and to begin to form friendships. People who you will share life with. People that you will love and be generous with and be willing to gently rebuke at times. People that you will lay down your life for. The normal Christian experience is to be knitted with each other in friendship. That's one of the reasons we created life groups at this church. You've heard us talk about our small group ministry life groups. We haven't done this because this is a trendy thing to do. We do this because this is a biblical thing to do to create environments where people can be friends. We're not a church with life groups that has them as like an extracurricular activity on the side. We're a church of life groups because part of what it means to join the church is to join one another in friendship, and that's what we do. If you read Acts chapter 2 and you see Peter preach the sermon on Psalm 16 and then you see the people respond by faith and repentance, what's the very next thing they do in Acts chapter 2? This group of people who did not know each other before, who have now been found by Jesus and join in that commonality, they become friends. Friends. And they join each other in friendship and they become radically generous with one another because they're united in Christ. One of the benefits we have in Jesus, he gives us friends. Number three, Jesus changes our desires. Look at verse four. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. You know, one of the ways that the Bible... um, Pleads with us about our sin. One of the ways the Bible um, talks about us resisting sin is by saying, Stop it. Stop doing that. You are heaping burning coals into your lap. You're like a vine that's growing and being choked by thorns. If you're pursuing your sin, stop it. Knock it off. But you know, another way that the Bible dissuades us from our sin is to tell us very simply like it does in Psalm 16, that's just not going to make you happy. The things that you're running after right now, they're not going to satisfy you. One more purchase on Amazon Prime is not going to solve something in your heart. Trying to bend your body to fit an image it never meant to fit is not going to make you happy. Trying to get other people to recognize all that you do and to get their satisfaction of you, that will not satisfy you. Your sin does not satisfy. It's not going to make you happy. The deeper the psalmist David walks with the Lord, the more this idolatry, this cultic practice, these blood offerings, he doesn't want to be a part of, he doesn't even want to name them on his lips because Jesus changes our appetite. That's one of the benefits of him. Number four, Jesus gives us everything we need. Verses 5 and 6, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a bountiful inheritance. You hear those words? Portion, cup, lot, lines, inheritance. All of that is Canaan language. All of that is promised land language. You'll remember that Israel was not just freed from slavery in Egypt, But after the desert wanderings, they go into the land of Canaan, now the land of Israel, and they conquer, and when they conquer, they are given an inheritance forever. God says to them and divides up this land for them, this is your inheritance, this is your lot, this is what you have been given. The language David is using is promised land language. Jesus gives us everything we need. We receive it like an inheritance from him. Number five, Jesus teaches us. Verses seven through eight talk about giving us counsel and instruct us. I love what David says. I have set the Lord always before me. He's in front of me. He's the one who, who informs every single thing I do. Jesus teaches us. In fact, Jesus is teaching us right now. Is Jesus not with us this morning, conform, confirming these things in your heart? Is, is Jesus not here now? speaking to your heart, saying these things that you hear in Psalm 16 are true? Is he not doing more than that? Is he not right now warming your heart to him? Are you not now hearing some of his benefits more in love with him this moment than you were moments ago? Jesus teaches us. He's doing that right now. I'm just talking into a microphone. Jesus is speaking to our hearts and teaching us and affirming these things from his word to us, even now. Jesus teaches us. Number six, Jesus claims all of us. Verse nine says, therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh dwells secure. Heart, being, flesh, that covers everything, and Jesus claims all of it. Now, I realize as David was writing this, this is kind of a poetic flourish. These things kind of parallel themselves. And so, by saying heart being in flesh, that's. That's a poetic flourish that David is making, more than a, a precise theological point. David might not be thinking ahead to first century Greek thought where the Gnostics gained power and they began to teach that what's most important is what we do spiritually in our prayer closet, and what's least important is what happens in our physical bodies and what we do in this world. But whether David intended that or not, do not sleep on the Psalms because there is a profound point being made here. Jesus claims the totality of us spirit, body, mind, and soul. He claims it all for himself. And every single thing we do in this life, whether it's in our spirit, in our prayer closet, or in our bodies sitting in traffic or mowing the lawn, whether it feels like it's a mountaintop experience or the mundane of daily living, there is not a thing that we do That Jesus does not claim the whole love and that we cannot return to him in worship. That is fantastic news for a Christian who changes diapers. Jesus claims all of us and everything we do. That is a benefit of being found in him. Number seven, Jesus makes us live forever. I want to camp out here. I want to spend time here. But then this sermon would last forever. But verse 10 says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Didn't we just spend the entire Easter season saying what David says so plainly in Psalm 16, that Jesus wasn't abandoned to Sheol, that is to death, nor did his body see corruption or decomposition, but he was killed and crucified. He was buried for three days and then he rose again from the dead. But Jesus gives us that benefit too. Watch what's happening here. David is living a thousand years before Jesus. And David is speaking these words prophetically over Jesus. Your Holy One is not going to see corruption. He said that a thousand years before Jesus. Do you know that Jesus, 2,000 years before you and I are sitting here today, spoke this same prophetic word over us Jesus will not see corruption, but neither will one who is found in him see corruption because Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Jesus speaks that over all who are found in him. If you know Jesus, you're going to live forever and ever and ever. And then finally, number eight, Jesus makes us truly happy. I hope you take Psalm 16 and verse 11 and underline it and highlight it and dog ear this page and make it your own because verse 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what we want to hear. That's what we want to know from Jesus. All of us our pleasure-seeking hedonists in our heart. We want to know that we will be happy. And Jesus says in Psalm 16, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to give you friends. I'm going to change your desires. I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to claim all of you for myself. I'm going to make you live forever. But do you know what? I'm going to make you the happiest you have ever been while I do all of that. In Jesus, we find, if we're willing, full and complete joy. He makes us happy forever and ever. Can we go to him and pray now? Jesus, these benefits sound like they are too good to be true. You claim all of us and you fill all of us with the joy of yourself. Heavenly Father, I pray that as a church, as fellow believers, we would grow in our understanding of that and we would cherish that and we would live in light of this joy. I plead this in your precious name. Amen.